I mean, we're recording now. So oh, are we? <laughs> <laughs> so I took Anya on a walk yesterday. I'm so proud of her. <laughs> she was not having any of it. <laughs> she used to be, for those of you that don't know, she used to be super trained on her harness and her lead, but we haven't. Her lead? Her leash. But we okay. haven't, sorry. <laughs> we haven't, we haven't walked in a while. So she's very skittish when we go outside, but so I ended up picking her up and walking her to, to the mailbox. To be fair, I'm really skittish when I go outside. Me too. So, <laughs> but on my way back, my neighbor downstairs, um, he's a really cool guy, but he walks up and we're walking up to the path at the same time. And he goes, did you get a new cat? And I was like, no. And he goes, I didn't know you had a cat. And I was like, how do you not know I have a cat? She's so loud. Or like, you need to address her. By her full title, which is Anastasia, the, the Grand Duchess, the Grand Duchess of Cats La Casa, Gato La Casa La Gato. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so that was that was my day yesterday. How That's have good. you been? I feel like I haven't seen you in um, forever. We took a long break. Yeah, I'm good. I've just been here in Phoenix, <laughs> existing. <laughs> yeah, we're just we're just back from the holidays now. So yes. my family is in. Northern California, so just we are in the COVID era. If you are <laughs> listening to this <laughs> during the apocalypse, a yeah, few yeah. years from now. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I wasn't able to go visit family. Just, just trying to Keep take as safe. many yeah precautions as I can. I didn't want to deal with flying, um, but I've been good. It's been a weird time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I. I'm definitely more fortunate than I would say most people. Oh so. yeah. Yeah. We have jobs and we have jobs. jobs that work with us. And yeah, I work from home. Um, but I've been good. I've just been doing lots of work for this bad boy. Yes. Um, <laughs> and speaking of which, like we are, we are speaking to you on a new microphone. That's that was beautiful. a Christmas present from one of my tree roots, my bestie, Mandy. Hi, Mandy. <laughs> Um, thank hi, you. Mandy. Yeah, thank you. She literally, <laughs> she texted me. It was it was right around Christmas, and she was like, "Hey, go uh, go uh, go look outside your door." Well, that's terrifying. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> "I'd rather not." I was like, "Um, I feel like this is a like, trap." <laughs> your present just arrived. I was like, "What? What the fuck are you talking what? about?" So I opened the door, and it's this big box from Amazon. I was like, "Huh?" And she's like, <laughs> "Open it," and. It was this new podcasting microphone. Beautiful. So thank you, Mandy. Yes, and thank you. We might we might actually sound professional. We won't sound professional. We won't I mean, the, the audio might sound it's a little a more professional. It's a beautiful dream. But yeah. And then in addition to that, we are drinking from our new official pod. I love podcasts. Our podcasts mugs. Mugs. And I, didn't, that's... I didn't put that on the post. Damn it. I messed up. You messed it up. But that is from my other bestie. My other tree roots. You're you're my third tree root. Thank you. But wait, me who came before everybody. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. So thank you very oh, much, man. Whitney. We are drinking from them now. I am yes. drinking the happy face mug, and Cat is drinking 
the grumpy face mug. As always. Um, she gave me an option. She's like, are you grumpy or happy? And I'm like, do I need to answer that for you? <laughs> I am always grumpy. Also, I'd like to point out that Anya is just like sprawled. She's just regally in the middle of my lounging. apartment. <laughs> I'm staring at us. Like, yeah. how dare you even address <laughs> oh, me? Oh, now she just blinked at you. <laughs> um, All right. Hmm. Well, welcome, guys. This is this Difficult is, Damsels. This is Difficult Damsels. I am Rachel. And I'm Kat. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so, um, what episode is this? this Number is, four? <laughs> this is episode four. <laughs> I, you know, I'm getting a little mixed up myself because I finished these notes um, a little over a week ago and I'm already working on notes for episode five. So I'm definitely yes. like, it's, it's four. What year is it? <laughs> um, we already have a really cool review that somebody put in. I'm going to read it, but we're we like would officially official. We, yeah, we're getting there. Um, <laughs> but as always, like, you know, we would, we could definitely use the help getting the word out. And one of the ways you can do that is just going on whatever podcasting app you use, be it Apple podcast, Spotify. Spotify. <laughs> yeah. So I know, Anchor. I know on Apple podcast, you can rate the podcast directly on the app. So if you could go in there, I mean, if you're not going to give us five stars, you can fuck off, but oh shit. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. Um, obviously, has been <laughs> we would love it if it was five stars. But yeah, like go go rate us, go leave us a review. Um, our first review comes from Moxie Mel, and they say, "I love the different energy you guys have. You both bounce off each other really well. Learning about the white ship tragedy and how so many heirs of England were lost that night was super interesting. The thought of how history could have been different had that not happened is mind blowing." And the fact that Stephen of Blah, Blah. <laughs> was supposed to be on the ship but couldn't handle the partying is priceless. I know. Anya agrees. Anya loves this review, guys. <laughs> and Rachel's hatred of Stephen of Blah. She just put a, like, crying, laughing face. <laughs> it would be fantastic if you guys could go more into the personalities of some of the people you mentioned. Love this podcast. Yay. And um, Moxie Mel, I have kept your request in mind, and I am definitely going to... I'm gonna try to try to go into some of those personalities because I'm right there with you. That that that's what makes history fun is when you get to the personalities of people. Yeah, but you got you also have to understand that yeah, I mean the personalities are kind of hearsay too. And, They're hearsay. And reading off of what happened and how. Yeah, they it's gonna it. be my interpretation of the yeah. personalities. Yeah. I, the other thing that always kind of popped out to me whenever I was listening to a history podcast or just reading anything about history is especially with the women they're always a footnote it's always like oh and then x was the wife of king blah 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 yeah. and she then did everything but she was also just there what? exactly <laughs> so like a lot of these personalities of the you know the secondary characters in our story are the primary characters in every other story so you can their their personalities are out there i want to yeah. give you the personality of the women we're um, we're talking about but I'll still, there's this new, new, this next episode we're doing. It is um, technically new. You weren't wrong. <laughs> this next episode we're doing, I'm definitely going to take a few moments to talk about like certain people that come up. I'm being attacked by cat hair over here. I'm sorry. <laughs> the usual. Yeah, the usual. <laughs> episode four is Isabella of France. Isabella of France was queen consort of England to King Edward II. She is forever known to history by many names. The Iron Lady. The fair. Hi, Jazzy. <laughs> She's like, thank you for calling me by my true names. <laughs> and my personal favorite and the one that most people probably know her by, 
the Louvre de France, aka, <laughs> aka the She Wolf of France. Yeah. I feel like the French are very obsessed with wolves, and I'm here for it. Wolves and lilies. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a legend in France about the the Louvre. No, that's not France. Is that France? I, I don't know. You tell me. I'm not sure now. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? It's it's um. Remember blood and chocolate? Yes. Vaguely. Luguru. That's what she was. A Wolves. werewolf? Yeah, but not. <laughs> okay, we're gonna have to look that up. <laughs> well, the whole she-wolf thing goes all the way back to Roman times because the city of Rome is the myth is that it was a she-wolf that bore two sons that would go on to found Rome. I did not know that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Like our Eleanor of Aquitaine, Isabella led a rebellion against her husband, but succeeded where our last difficult damsel failed, usurping the throne of England from her husband in the name of her son. Yes, I know you love the word usurping. I love the word usurping. (laughs) She would be the regent of England for four years before her son finally came into his full authority and set her aside. History remembers Isabella as a Machiavellian femme fatale, manipulative and conniving. Yes. She is one of the few queen consorts to openly have an affair and actually get away with it, at least for a time. This is a story that is going to require a lot of background information on the English political climate of the time. So for a while, it's going to seem like this story isn't even about Isabella of France. But I think it's important to provide some context of the environment that she grew up in so that we can fully understand the action she would later take in life to earn her the moniker of the She-Wolf of France. So I forgot to plug the mic in. Wow. So now the audio might sound. Now that our <laughs> mic is plugged in, remember when we said it's probably still not going to sound professional? Oh, well, there you go. It's you know what? It's going along with the theme of the day, which is everything shit show. Just ugh. It's the theme yeah. of the day is ugh. All right. So we do not have an exact birth date for Isabella, but historians place it sometime between May and November of 1295 in Paris. How petty. Isabella was the last surviving child born to King Philip IV of France and Queen Joan I of Navarre. So she is... I love when you look pointedly at me like that and I panic because I'm like, am I supposed to know something? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell it to you. Okay. (laughs) So um, Isabella's family is really interesting. She is the first queen consort of England where her mother is the queen regnant of Navarre completely in her own right. So both her father and her mother ruled their own sovereign kingdoms ah. interestingly enough though her like mother separate, like they were in separate like lived separately because that sounds great no not oh. <laughs> really so if you look at this map i can kind of show you it she just has the map so this is kind of where navarre is oh, okay. so i mean at the time it in just Spain? yes gotcha. so at the time it just meant like at that point it's part of france gotcha. but they both rule oh okay so it's kind of like Catherine of Aragon's parents and how Queen Isabella was the Queen of Aragon and then Philip was the King of Navarre. I believe it was Navarre. Was it Navarre? No, it might be. <laughs> don't ask me. I don't know. You're the you're the the amateur historian here. <laughs> I feel like it's not. I don't. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Someone will. So before us. Catherine of Aragon, <laughs> there was Isabella of France, and both her parents were ruling. Um, but interestingly enough. I didn't, I couldn't find the details on this, but there was like a rumor that her father killed her mother. So she, oh. she didn't live very long um, after Isabella was born. That's. <laughs> so now we're going to get into Isabella's father. 
King Philip IV of France was known as Philip the Fair due to being incredibly handsome. He was known to others as being the Iron King. I hate to say it, but anytime you, like, that name just makes me think of someone who is not manly in the slightest. Oh, wait till I'm about to tell you this. I know he probably is. It's probably like calling the, the huge guy tiny. But like and when you say someone the fair, I'm like, no, oh, he's a bitch. Okay. They just, they called him, the, it could have been fair of skin or it could have been beautiful. I mean, who the fuck knows? But so he was also known as the Iron King. His rule in France and his presence in Europe was indisputable with France being the most powerful country in Western Europe. So we've come a long way from the time of Eleanor of Aquitaine, where France is literally cut in half. Mm -hmm. It's not that way anymore. So now it's its own thing? It's pretty much its own thing. The only area of France that England controls is Gascony. It's right here. It's literally the southernmost portion of France, kind of where Aquitaine was. Gotcha. So long before there was the curse of the House of Tudor in England, said to doom the Tudor line to extinction, and being the source of Henry VIII's desperation to produce a male heir, there was the curse of the Capetian line of kings in France. Oh. So we're about to get into it. Anytime you say curse, I'm all in. I get so excited <laughs> about this time period. So Philip IV had notoriously owed a vast sum of money to the Knights Templar, and instead of paying his debt, he turned France and the papacy against the Templars, accusing them of money laundering and heresy. The end result was a series of fraudulent trials, forced confessions, and the Knights Templar leadership being burned at the stake. Thus marked the dramatic end to the Knights Templar order. That's unfortunate. So that her father is the reason that order was completely eradicated. Good for him. (laughs) Sad that people had to die, but good for him. (laughs) I mean, so we're going to get into that. (laughs) Oh, no. So less than a month after the Knights Templar leadership was burned, Pope Clement V, who had been complicit in the scapegoating of the Templars, died of lupus. Eight months after the Templars were burned, Philip IV himself died of a stroke while hunting. Contemporaries of the time claimed it was the karmic retribution for his destruction of the Templars. Despite the fact that Philip IV had three healthy sons to succeed him, all three were crowned and all three died in quick succession of one another. That's definitely a curse. <laughs> 14 years after the death of Philip IV, his male line has been completely extinguished. You don't uh, mess with anything. Burn people at the stake. Yeah, you don't mess with things like that. <laughs> the universe comes back at you like tenfold. <laughs> so when the last of his sons died, the contenders to his throne were his nephew, the future Philip VI, who starts the line of the Valois kings. Sure. Uh, if, <laughs> if you watched Rain, nope, no, okay, no. well, never mind. There, there. <laughs> so you had the Capetian kings, and then the next house that came into power. It's because okay. it's a cadet branch, but it was the House of Valois. Gotcha, gotcha. The other contender to the throne was his grandson by his daughter Isabella of France, the future King Edward III of England. So this begins the Hundred Years' War, and we won't be covering the Hundred Years' War in this episode, but the drama that led up to that period is going to be going on in the background of France. So Maurice Durand wrote a fantastic book series called The Accursed Kings, and it is all about the curse of the Capetian, Capetian, Capetian line. Do you have that book? I'm, I'm assuming you have that I book. have the entire series. I knew it. <laughs> so George R. R. Martin famously called the Accursed Kings series the original Game of Thrones. Yes. And if anyone listening feels a void in their lives from Game of Thrones <laughs> ending, or because they are forever waiting on the release of The Winds of Winter like I am. George. 
get on it. <laughs> the Accursed Kings is basically Game of Thrones without magic. It's a it's a really good series. There's uh if you read it, like do you remember the Queen of Thorns from Game of Thrones, Alana Tyrell, the old grandmother yes. lady? So there's a clear influence in these books. Oh. Um, for her like there's a character that I'm like that's the original Elena Terrell and she like lived in history you said Queen of Thorns and I automatically thought of one of my favorite book series Court of Thorns and yeah. Roses okay so Isabella's childhood like her brothers before her Isabella's marriage was arranged when she was a child and for political benefit she was betrothed at the age of seven to the son of Edward the first of England I'm almost growing numb to you saying things like that to me <laughs> I know it's, oh. it just doesn't it never gets better <laughs> so this match was intended to strengthen the ties of uh the ties with england um at this point as i mentioned in history england still rule still rules gascony but it still has claims to anjou and normandy and aquitaine i feel like you should face me okay you keep looking i'm just the we're using a microphone so we each have to be on the couch you want to look at my beautiful face okay turn back around <laughs> turn your back to me <laughs> So at 12 years old, Isabella married 24-year-old Edward II at Boulogne-sur-Mer. And like almost all European unions of the Middle Ages, the two were also cousins a couple of times removed and shared an ancestor in Eleanor of Aquitaine. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so Edward II was the great-grandson of King John, the annoying little... Oh, that one! Son. Yeah. <laughs> And then Isabella was directly related through her daughter. I believe it was Blanche of okay. Navarre. Really? So they're just, they're closely related. <laughs> As all of We're them are. We're going to the family tree. <laughs> it's in the book I'm reading. Of I should have brought it. I forgot. <laughs> How dare you? Isabella brought with her an end to an ongoing struggle for dominance between the English and French kingdoms, as well as the wealth of France when she was married. Her wardrobe had several dresses made of velvet, taffeta, and cloth, and a number of furs. She brought with her 72 headdresses and coifs. You have enough headdresses, ma'am. Two golden crowns as well as gold and silver dinnerware. And again, this is for a 12-year-old. For her wedding. It was clear that England's new young bride came from wealth and prestige. Contemporaries of the time are said to have noted Isabella was very beautiful and similar to her father, so that she had already earned the nickname of Isabella the Fair. It just boggles my mind she's that you'd be seven? like, she's 12. All right. You're like, this 12-year-old is just so this fair. This 12-year-old is so beautiful. Okay, pedophile, why don't you go sit in the corner? And on another unusual, very unusual note for the time period, a lot of contemporaries also pointed out her incredible intelligence at that age. Okay. So it, it's That just... you can point out and not be creepy. <laughs> I mean, it's still kind of creepy. <laughs> it's kind of a little creepy. It's like, but... do you think all girls are dumb? Yes. Yes, they did. <laughs> Okay, so that was not us saying we think all girls are dumb. <laughs> no, not at all. It's just, yeah, people of the time, like women, were just like second class citizens, basically. Yeah. They're basically around the same level as dogs and donkeys. Cattle, because they just yeah. are married off for their land. It's yeah. great. <laughs> so Isabella faced a unique challenge in her marriage with Edward II. Whereas it was commonplace for kings to have favorites that often took the form of mistresses, Edward's favorites were men. The two chief men among his favorites throughout his reign were Piers Gaveston and Hugh Dispenser the Younger. It's called the Younger because his father was also Hugh Dispenser. Maybe if you pick different fucking names, five... you didn't need these little monikers afterwards. They only have five <laughs> names. We've talked about we've this. Only, we've only got five, guys. <laughs> we've established this long ago. <laughs> so both of whom were spec 
speculated to have been lovers of Edward II, or at the very least romantic attachments. Historians can't say for certain if their relationships were sexual, but we do know for a fact that Edward formed very deep attachments to both. He was essentially besotted with them, completely and utterly obsessed. But it should be noted that there was no concrete evidence that exists one way or another to suggest what Edward II's sexuality was. We only have the contemporary descriptions of these relationships, and um, I mean, it was a popular line of speculation among historians. He did have four children with Isabella, all of whom grew to adulthood. And I mean, the other thing you have to keep in mind is the church is very much a big influence of the time. So any breath of homosexuality is, was considered a sin. In this time period, it's punishable by death. So one of the Plantagenet kings, Edward was said to look the part perfectly. He was apparently exceptionally handsome and was noted to be very tall and athletic. But despite his athleticism, he didn't appear to be interested in the more traditional hobbies that medieval kings were known for. He had no interest in jousting or, hunt or hunting, and he showed little aptitude or desire for warfare, even from a young age. So this is considered an aberration of the time. Mm -hmm. Edward was more interested in the more, again, quote-unquote, frivolous and typical feminine pursuits of music, theater, and poetry. So when Isabella had first arrived in England, Piers Gaveston was already firmly entrenched in Edward's life. During the feast following Isabella's coronation celebration, try saying that fast. Coronation times. celebration? <laughs> I said it once, that's it. Coronation that's celebration. It doesn't, it doesn't work if you sing it. <laughs> I think it does. Oh, okay. <laughs> so um, during this coronation celebration. <laughs> I was going to say, if you don't say it, I'm going to get so mad. <laughs> Edward chose to sit next to Gaveston, effectively ignoring his new 12-year-old bride. Gaveston was also- I don't know, but that puts him in a good place in my book. <laughs> He's avoiding his 12-year-old bride. I mean, yeah, he wasn't interested. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Sorry. Fine. I mean, yeah, because creepy. She's yeah. a child. But so <laughs> the interesting thing about this was Gaveston was observed to be so ornately dressed that he almost looked to be a king himself. The tapestries that had been hung for the feast, um, they contained the coat of arms belonging to the king and Piers Gaveston rather than the king and his new queen. Okay. <laughs> Gaveston had even donned the color of purple for the coronation. The royal color. An expensive dye that was re exclusively reserved for royalty. Dun, dun, dun. So this is giving you an idea of who um, Piers Gaveston was. He's just, yeah. a lot of contemporaries refer to him as like this flamboyant Is peacock. it Piers or Pierre? It might be Pierre. Okay, sorry. I mean, it's spelled... Move your hand. Your hand's in the way. I have no idea. I don't actually speak French, so... <laughs> I'm gonna call him Pierre. I love how I lean in, like I'm, like I know. If it's Pierre, I apologize. Okay. But whatever. I don't, I don't I'm gonna know. call him Gaveston because everybody works. refers to them by their last names. Cool. So the public snub was very much an affront to the English barons in attendance, as it had also been to Isabella herself and her uncles, the very powerful counts of Valois and Everoux, who had also been in attendance. Okay, so it should also be known that Piers Gaveston was very much considered an upstart. He was a former, I said Esquire when I looked this up. I think that just means squire. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> he didn't come from English arist aristocratic stock, yet Edward had named him the Earl of Cornwall, which is a title and wealthy estate historically reserved for members of the king's immediate household. Uh 
Oh, he's just snubbing people left and right for this guy. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so Isabella was essentially sidelined by Edward and Gaveston. The presents and jewelry that Philip IV, her father, mm-hmm. had given Edward as part of Isabella's dowry intended for her use were instead given to Gaveston. Edward also refused to provide her with her own household and failed to provide her with the land that was commonplace at the okay, time. Okay, now that you I would, feel bad for her. You would assign. She's displaced, married off at 12, and then just snubbed at every In a, every in a foreign country and just... Um, yeah, with no friends, no allies. and Yeah, just kind of completely disrespected. Oh, man. And to add insult to injury, Gaveston even wore her jewelry in public. Isabella was not afforded the respect and dignity that would be expected for a princess of France, much less the queen consort of England. And it wasn't until Isabella's father, King Philip IV, intervened that Edward finally provided for her more appropriately. He basically started funding um, the rivals to Gaveston and was like, if you don't treat my daughter appropriately, you have a bigger problem. Yeah. So Gaveston's blatant abuse of the king's favoritism was a point of contention amongst the barons. As their frustrations grew, it became increasingly difficult for Edward to keep Gaveston around. Philip IV in France was said to have covertly funded these barons in response to his daughter's mistreatment, and Edward was eventually forced to exile Gaveston to Ireland. Oh, I feel bad, but also not. He so was it, exiled to Ireland, come on. <laughs> he, he gets exiled a lot. I mean... <laughs> maybe just stay away. Maybe just... I mean, maybe don't be as big of an asshole... Like, yeah, it usually tends to help. Be a favorite, but don't do it. Don't rub it in people's faces. Yeah. The second you start rubbing pe- things in people's faces, you're going to piss people off and no one's yeah. going to be on your side. So in his absence, Isabella was afforded her own lands and finally started to appear at her husband's side. And Philip IV, in turn, removed his support for the barons. And then by 1309, Gaveston returns from exile. From Ireland. Did I not say Ireland? No, you did. I was, okay. I'm reiterating. Yes, yes. from Ireland. <laughs> yes. So he returns. I'm also just dreaming of Ireland, but don't worry about it. I know, me too. <laughs> One day. <laughs> so things start deteriorating for Edward II and Piers Gaveston around 1311, beginning with a failed and embarrassing campaign against Scotland, where both Edward and Isabella narrowly escaped being captured by the Scots. Tensions had been mounting for years, some of which were left over from Edward the fa- Edward's father's rule. The barons had become disenchanted with what they believed was an abuse of royal powers when it came to financing wars. By this point, Edward had pretty much taxed his barons to fund a war he was reluctant to fight and used a majority of that money on himself and Gaveston. I just love when they're like mad about abuse of power and I'm like, when when in the history of humans has anyone in power not abused their power? Well, England is really interesting. We're actually about to get into it. So the barons revolted against Edward, signing the Ordinances of 1311, which imposed a series of regulations on the king and his counselors. So just as the Magna Carta had been drafted approximately 100 years earlier to restrict the power of the monarchy, this is during King John's reign. (laughs) That guy. (laughs) So too did the Ordinances. These ordinances added some oversight to the monarchy by the nobility via the parliament. So the Magna Carta, um, it it didn't act for like the regular um, peasantry, but it did give some rights to the nobility. And again, those rights end up being the inspiration for the constitution. All right. 
Interesting. It's all connected. It is all connected. That's why I love history. (laughs) (laughs) So essentially the barons that signed this document made it clear to Edward that if he did not adhere to their demands, they would forsake the oaths sworn to him and essentially refuse to acknowledge him as king. Oh, that's a... That's a claim. <laughs> yeah. So by 1312, the country had descended into full-blown civil war against Edward. During this time in their marriage, Isabella was said to be a faithful queen and companion. She stood by his side, advocating for him, and sent letters to her uncles in France to ask for support. A threat to his godly ordained power was by, associate, by association a threat to hers as well. So she has every reason to still like side with her husband at this point. Yeah. By now, Isabella was also pregnant, and so she retreated to Tynemouth Priory while her husband went to face his conspirators in battle. I'm really scared to ask, how old is she? Do we know? I believe she's 16. Okay, carry on. The campaign was an utter disaster, though. Edward escaped, but Gaveston was not so lucky and was captured by the barons at Scarborough Castle. The terms of the surrender had been that the barons that captured Gaveston would keep him captive while negotiating with the king for his terms of release, guaranteeing Gaveston's safety and placing him in the care of the Earl of Pembroke. So a little bit on the Earl of Pembroke. He took his duty of safeguarding Gaveston very seriously. Pembroke at one point had been intended for the church, and so he viewed his vow to protect Gaveston as a matter of sacred duty. And Pembroke had been respectful to Gaveston affording him comfortable lodgings, and if Gaveston had remained in his care, things might have ended very differently. Oh, no. So Gaveston... That's called foreshadowing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So all you need to know about the Earl of Pembroke is basically he was a former ally of Edward, but he'd kind of seen where things were going with Gaveston and the way they were just tearing up the country. Yeah. So he defected. But he's probably one of the more noble nobles. So he believed in treating his prisoners with respect. So to make a long story short, Gaveston was eventually captured by the Earl of Warwick. The Earl of Warwick had been very vocal in his belief that Gaveston was a poor counselor to the king and publicly declared him an enemy to the kingdom on more than one occasion. His treatment of Gaveston was less, less kind than Pembroke's had been, and he was imprisoned as that of a traitor and afforded all the lack of dignity one might expect from such a label. That's funny coming from a Warwick. It's always the Warwicks. <laughs> I was thinking that too. That's, when I read that's this. just a hilarious statement coming from a Warwick. <laughs> <laughs> so the Earl of Warwick was understandably reluctant to go far, to go so far against the king as to condemn his favorite to death, in part because Gaveston was a member of the peerage himself, and to condemn an earl to death without trial would set a dangerous precedent for any member of the peerage. Yeah. The Earl of Lancaster. Thomas of Lancaster, however, didn't care. Oh, good. (laughs) So Thomas of Lancaster is a name that's going to come up repeatedly. Okay. It's a new name. It is a new name. We have six names. (laughs) So the Earl of Lancaster, I'm going to call him Thomas of Lancaster. He is probably the most powerful member of the English peerage outside of Gaveston and the king. Peerage? Peerage. Peerage. Okay. Peerage. Yeah. So they're called like the peers of the realm. Yeah. He truly believed that Piers Gaveston was an evil counselor to the king and a blight on the realm. He needed to go. Again, remember the name Thomas of Lancaster because it's going to keep coming up. Piers... I feel like those are the dangerous people, the people who whisper in the powerful people's ears. 
he was the powerful people that people whispered it. Well, I'm, I'm saying like the the um like the the hands to the king or whatever they're yes. called, and like those always seem oh, to be the saying. more dangerous because they're Gaveston, basically playing puppet master. Yeah, Gaveston was dangerous precisely because Edward was so besotted with him and would do yeah. whatever he wanted. And you can essentially scapegoat the king. Yeah, <laughs> you're like the king made those decisions, not me. <laughs> So, Piers Gaveston was thus condemned to death for violating the terms of the ordinances. And on June 19th, 1312, he is, he's taken out to Blacklow Hill on the Earl of Lancaster's lands, run through with a sword, and beheaded. Wow. Afterwards, Gaveston's body was unceremoniously abandoned at the site of his execution. Thomas of Lancaster watched from a distance as the other men did his dirty work and then rode off on his horse. Sounds right. Nope. Oh, God. So when Edward II found out about Gaveston's death, he was enraged. Edward would never forgive them and vowed to have retribution against the barons that had all been involved. Gotta be careful pissing off the king, people. Yeah, I mean, you gotta be careful pissing off your barons, too. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the the people who are going to suffer for this are, are going to be the peasants because it's their land that everyone fights on. Yep. So Isabella has so far been sidelined in her own story, but she has been watching and waiting patiently this whole time. She has learned that her husband is an ineffectual leader and a slave to passions that often override his better judgment. On November 12, 1312, just a couple of months after the brutal death of Piers Gaveston, a 17-year-old Isabella finally gives birth to a son, the future Edward III of England. Having completed her primary duty as queen consort, Isabella was afforded a greater degree of status, and this is when things begin to change for her. In 1313, Edward and Isabella were invited to travel to France for the celebration of her brothers being knighted. The ceremony was essentially one big giant party, a lavish affair resplendent with people literally drinking and dancing in the streets. Now, as I was doing my research, I guess, like, literally the fountains in Paris had wine pouring out of them. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, this is a thing, I guess. Why can't that be a thing all the time? (laughs) Paris. I don't know if that's, I don't think it's still a thing, but like. I don't think that's sanitary, but. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people died from dysentery during this time. This Remember, is, this is true. So the celebrations were a welcome distraction from the fighting back in England for Edward. He was treated as an equal amongst the powerful French aristocracy, and he had his beautiful, lovely French wife to thank for this. Mm-hmm. Isabella herself was finally able to fully embody her station. She was an absolute hit in Paris, with one contemporary of the time remarking that Isabella was the fairest of the fair, even as the sun surpasses the stars. <clears throat> it is at this point that Isabella uncovers the Tower de Nessel scandal, involving the wives of her three brothers, which would go on to be known as the Tour de Nessel affair. Are you so go buckle into that? up, oh, okay. baby? <laughs> it is time to get into the soapiest trash wool. Actually, I shouldn't say that because a lot of people die, but... Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, don't a lot of people die in soap operas anyway? <clears throat> well, buckle up because this is a salacious tale of adultery, betrayal, and death. The type of story that puts all soap operas and most historical dramas to utter shame. I love when you talk dirty to me. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> so while visiting Paris to celebrate her brother's recent knighthood, Isabella was given... Isabella had given newly embroidered purses to her sister-in-law's. Later <laughs> later on, she observed that these uniquely embroidered purses were now in the possession of two Norman knights back in London, which had piqued her curiosity and fanned the flames of a new suspicion. Because mm-hmm. again, she 
from what I understand, like they were uniquely made, so like she could spot so them. So you right could away. track track them back to where they came from, basically. Yeah, she just she <clears throat> she recognized them as like being the ones she gave her sister in laws. <clears throat> oh, so her sister in laws gave them to knights. Yes. The fuck's a knight gonna do with an embroidered purse? I mean, it's it's like a gift of I don't know affection. Is it like a doily? Like when they give you the doily? It's just like, hey, I love you. Here's this. I'm sorry. If you if you say, hey, I love you, and you hand me a purse, I'm going to throw it back at you. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> she had essentially stumbled upon the discovery that her sister-in-laws were all having affairs. And during her next visit to France in 1314, she confesses her suspicions to her father. Uh-oh. Or Philip IV. Uh-oh. So Philip IV had the two knights surveilled, observing that they were often in the company of Marguerite of Burgundy the first wife to the future Louis X of France, and Blanche of Burgundy, Marguerite's cousin, the wife of the future Charles IV of France. The third, Joan of Burgundy, um, I believe this is Blanche's sister and Marguerite's cousin as well. Okay. She was married to the future Philip X of France and was said to simply be an accomplice to the other two women. So she would kind of like keep lookout and... Are those the sisters-in-laws? Or... These are all the sister-in-laws. Okay. And they are all from, um, I believe it's the Duchy of Burgundy, so another province of France. Very okay. powerful family. Yeah. So I could honestly do an entire episode <laughs> on the Tour de Nessel scandal because of how convoluted it was, but the end result was that Marguerite and Blanche were both tried and found guilty of adultery and condemned to life imprisonment. Their two lovers had a far more devastating fate, and this is where we get medieval graphic here, so consider this your warning. R-rated, R-rated, skip R-rated. Forward, <laughs> skip forward 15 seconds if you don't want to hear about this. <clears throat> so the two men were publicly ca- castrated, drawn and quartered, broken on the wheel, and then beheaded. Oh my god. Yeah. Jesus. So Marguerite and Blanche had their heads shaved to mark their shame and were condemned to imprisonment where it's speculated they were tortured. Philip IV died not long after this, leaving Louis to ascend to the throne while his wife was still in prison. I I love all of that because they cheated on their husbands. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit. So Louis X attempted to get an annulment to his marriage to Marguerite, and when that failed, she dies under very mysterious circumstances, um, and most people believe she was murdered while in captivity, so she could clear the way for him yeah. to get a new wife. <clears throat> Blanche remained in captivity for the next eight years until Philip the Tenth died. Fifth, tenth. Oh, I'm so confused. There's what so is many... happening? <laughs> so Blanche was in captivity um, basically until Charles ascends to the throne. He's okay. the third brother. Okay. So she's she's in captivity for eight years. Charles succeeded where Philip V had failed, annulling his marriage to Blanche, and she was sent to a nunnery while Charles Charles remarried almost immediately. Of course. So I just want to note here that the. Tor de Nessel scandal stands out in large part because the Burgundy sisters suffered such a harsh fate for a crime that is perpetuated by their male counterparts all the time. Kings had mistresses often openly. Queens were expected to endure this in silence. And should any deign to do the same, they were often killed for it. There is also a very practical reason that royal wives were expected to be chased, and it was a matter of dynasty dynastic security well yeah if the if the king has 800 bastards like okay it'll cause a problem maybe but if the 
if you can't the heir isn't the heir <laughs> yeah if you can't verify his paternity and or that's, if anything is if, if there is any room for question yeah yeah and yeah exactly so if there's any any shadow of a doubt regarding the chastity of a queen or a princess the legitimacy of the male heir could become the subject of question but um I, there's just no question here that the treatment of the burgundy sisters was especially heinous horrid <laughs> So Joan is the only one who gets out of the scandal relatively unscathed, due in large part to the fact that Philip V, um, he was said to have genuinely loved her. So he campaigned relentlessly Aww. to essentially get her back. Yeah. So there's so, there's a there's a light in the a, darkness a of this story. <laughs> um, they remained Aww. married. So Isabella's involvement in exposing her sister-in-law's affairs has had far-reaching ramifications for the Capetian line. All three of Philip IV's sons failed to produce male heirs except for one, but he didn't live past his infancy. Huh. He he literally lived, like, not even two weeks. And it's rumored he might have been poisoned. What? By, so this was... A baby? So Louis ascends to the throne, mm-hmm. and when he dies, his wife is literally pregnant. Mm-hmm. So they had to wait on the ascension... To see if the child was a boy. Yeah. And the child was a boy and then magically, literally a few days later, he dies. Suspicious. Yeah. It, it's all, like I said, read the Accursed Kings I because mean, this details it. I feel like children dying was a... It was a thing. It was a common thing, but... But it was very... It was... Yeah. The timing was very suspicious. Yeah. It's a little <laughs> too serendipitous in the most morbid way possible. Yeah. <laughs> So some contemporaries of the time speculated rather salaciously that Isabella had contrived the whole thing in some sort of Machiavellian plot, scheming to have all three of her brother's wives imprisoned so as to prevent them from producing male heirs so that the French throne might in turn pass to her son. Which is an utterly absurd accusation, as her brothers could have easily just remarried, two of them did, Hmm. And there was no way to know that their reigns would A, be so short-lived, and B, not produce any male heirs. Nevertheless, contemporaries loved to use this scandal to help craft the reputation of the she-wolf she would later go on to embody without the aid of embellished tales. And it's perhaps ironic that Isabella would condemn her brother's wives for a crime she would later go on to commit herself, albeit under completely different circumstances. So the next decade would see a big shift in power, in Edward II's court. Edward found a new ally in Hugh Dispenser, the Elder, the rival of the Lancastrians, who Edward blamed for Gaveston's death. Edward II's war with his barons had left England vulnerable to Scottish raids, with the very formidable Robert Bruce pressing as far south as Yorkshire. So Edward had blamed his barons for the failure of the campaign, but it was very much his ineffectual leadership that was his failing. So just to give you an idea of how utterly horrible he was as a leader, two of his earls had fought amongst themselves over who would lead the charge against Robert Bruce at the battle outside of Stirling. The Earl of Gloucester had charged before the rest of the English army was ready and was struck down in battle like with arrows, just like Duh. completely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the rest of the English army caved amidst the confusion and Edward II himself fled the battlefield as his soldiers were spitted on pikes cut down with arrows and beheaded by the Scots. Great guy. Someone to follow. Right? (laughs) (laughs) And Robert Bruce emerged as the indisputable king of the Scots, and the king of England was utterly humiliated 
fleeing for his life with his tail between his legs. So as the conflict with the barons is rising again, the Great Famine also makes its way to England and utterly devastates the countryside, leaving crops destroyed and the peasantry starving. So you've got war with Scotland, you've got another civil war ramping up because of his new favorite, and then you've got this famine coming along. So to high just, taxes, probably. It's just everything's getting wrecked. On top of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. And I'm sure the peasantry are being affected more by this famine oh, than always. Yeah. the rich noble assholes who are probably partying in their castles. Yeah. Well, and they get thirsted mm-hmm. on the food. Too. Yeah. So Thomas of Lancaster is pretty much the face of the resistance and the biggest rival to Edward. And of course, because everyone in this time period is related, I should probably take a little (laughs) time to explain Thomas's relation. Oh god, here we go. (laughs) So he was the son of Edmund of Lancaster, Edward I's younger brother, which makes him Edward II's cousin. His mother was Blanche of Artois, the sister of Isabella's mother, making him Isabella's uncle as well. (laughs) so he's basically as obstinate as and as arrogant as edward ii is but from the other side right and just to just to top it all off the big difference is that thomas of lancaster actually has an aptitude for military command yeah so he has something to back it up (laughs) yes so it's right around this time that we see isabella step into the political battleground herself actively taking a role in governing and sitting in on council meetings. Isabella did her best to act as an intermediary between her husband and her uncle, but there was little she could actually do in practice as the two just, they utterly, they hated one another. Yeah. Couldn't even be in the same room. I I know a few people who I couldn't be in the same room with. Yes. (laughs) It doesn't matter what you tell me. (laughs) So Edward apparently did not learn his lesson the first time, and by 1321, a new favorite of his emerges in court by the name of Hugh Dispenser the Younger. So named the king's royal chamberlain, Dispenser was essentially the gatekeeper to the king and determined who got to have an audience with him and who did not. There is less evidence to suggest a mutual romantic relationship between Edward and Dispenser, but Edward himself was said to just be utterly besotted and obsessed with him. Okay. <laughs> Unlike Piers Gaveston, Hugh Dispenser was more predatorial. Hi. What do you want? She wants to be in the podcast. (laughs) So Hugh Dispenser is much more predatorial. He was power hungry and convinced the king to give him more land um, along the Welsh marshes, which is where you see the conflict really start to amp up. So your differences between Gaveston and Dispenser are Gaveston's more in it just for For the, the relationship almost for the trappings. Okay. He wants the clothes. He wants he wants the title, but he doesn't necessarily need the power to go with it. Yeah. Um, Gaveston wanted everything. Is like um, wool, almost like Woolsey, kind of, a little bit like Woolsey. I Woolsey actually cared about running the kingdom, though. Oh, yeah, he did. <laughs> he 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 did a he ruled the kingdom. Yeah. Whereas the Gaveston just is like, give me all your money. Yeah. Give Wait. me all your lands. I don't care what happens to you. Wait, Gaveston or what's the other guy's name? Oh, I totally meant Dispenser. Dispenser. I- yes, thank you. <laughs> Dispenser was the one that was like, I want all your lands. I want your castles. I don't care if your children are thrown in the dirt. Whereas. Sounds like a great guy. Yeah. Sounds like a winner. Oh, it's going to get better. In every book, I'm going to like him. 
By intervening directly in Welsh land holdings, Hugh Dispenser and Edward II earned themselves more enemies in the form of the Marcher Lords. Chief amongst them were Thomas of Lancaster, who was now Hugh Dispenser's neighbor. Edward also found new enemies in the form of Roger Mortimer of Chirk and Ro- Roger Mortimer of Wigmore. Oh, I'm sorry. Just, I don't... Really? <laughs> yes. Remember the name Mortimer... Oh my god. Mortimer? Because there's two of them? <laughs> Remember the name Mortimer? It's going to come up again soon. Okay. So while Isabella had found a way to compromise and work with Edward's previous favorite grudgingly of course no such working relationship was worked out with Hugh Dispenser the younger her relationship with Dispenser was said to be marketably more hostile Hugh Dispenser openly taunted Isabella and just as Edward had given away her jewels to Gaveston in the past he similar similarly oh my god similarly he also did the same with some of her most prized possessions oh good um she was an avid reader, and I guess he gave one of like her French poetry nope, books. Nope, he'd be that dead if loved. he gave any of my yeah. books away. If you give any of my books away, your body will never be found. <laughs> We're gonna scratch this from the record. <laughs> so, on top of all of that, some contemporaries of the time also suggested that Hugh Dispenser actually attempted to physically assault, assault Isabella. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah, it's kind of one of those like, what's mine is yours kind of things. Yeah. Really don't he like was this not man. a good dude. No, it doesn't sound yeah. like it at all. So again, to make a long story short, Edward and Hugh Dispenser are continuing to piss off a lot of their barons, and Hugh Dispenser found himself exiled from England as Piers Gaveston had been before him. Isabella is still supporting her husband during all of this. In 1321, Isabella made a pilgrimage to Canterbury, but ends up making a trip to Leeds Castle in Kent instead. Leeds Castle at this point was under control of Bartholomew de Battlesmere, who had previously been a steward in Edward's household, but had deflected to the rival faction. Again, because Edward is alienating all of his allies. Yeah. You kind of need those guys. Yeah, you kind (laughs) of need them. So by showing up at the castle, it is believed that Isabella was deliberately trying to provoke the opposition because she knew they would deny her admittance. And to deny the Queen of England admittance to your castle. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's basically like declaring war. Yeah, yeah. And of course, they did pick a fight, and um, the fight broke out between Isabella's guards and the soldiers garrisoned at Leeds Castle. Edward soon brought his army down to siege the castle, and the rival garrison surrendered. Bartholomew de Battlesmere was not there, but he had left his castle in the care of his wife, Margaret. And in the end, Margaret and her children were taken to the Tower of London, and 12 members of the garrison at Leeds were hanged. So attacking the queen's forces was considered treason, and Edward used it as an excuse to take Leeds Castle by force and swiftly rid himself of one of his enemies. That you made by yourself. Yeah. (laughs) So we don't know for sure if Isabella was acting on a script or if she was used as an unwitting pawn by Edward and Hugh Dispenser, but this question has been a the source of much speculation over the centuries. On top of that, that castle should have been part of her dowry. Yeah. So some people say that she, did she went there. Dowry back. Yeah, she went there willingly, knowing what would happen, so she could get her castle. We don't know for sure though. I wonder if she went there willingly and didn't let her husband in on it. Oh no, he very much knew. Oh, did he? That's okay. that's that much is known for sure. Oh, okay. But, okay. Yeah, because like when his army came, it was. I feel like if she's days. been playing in politics as much as she has by the at the up to this point, she knew what she was doing. I 
I want to believe she knew what I, she was doing. I personally tend to believe she was at least aware. I don't yeah. I don't prescribe to the idea that like she was just this doe-eyed unwitting pawn. Just doe-eyed. Isabella <laughs> was incre- like said to be incredibly smart. So emboldened by the victory at Leeds Castle, Edward gathered his royalist supporters to march on the rebellious marcher lords. In 1322, the Mortimers are captured and moved to the Tower of London. And from there, Edward moved on to Thomas of Lancaster. So for Isabella's part, she reached out on her husband's behalf to Andrew Harclay, beseeching him to thwart any attempt at escape made by Lancaster. Who's Andrew Harclay? He's a soldier um, up in the area. Okay. So just a random? Not a random. Like, he's one of the commanders. Gotcha. Okay. (laughs) And sure enough, Harclay's forces captured Lancaster at Borough Bridge in Yorkshire and then moved to deliver him to Edward. After a hasty trial of his peers was put together, some of whom were former allies to Lancaster, Thomas of Lancaster was denied any opportunity to offer his own defense, and I imagine he had to know that his fate was already sealed at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, when your friends turn on you, even though, I mean, they well, don't have a choice. Well, when your friends <laughs> turn on you and you're responsible for killing the king's previous lover slash favorite. That's true. Yep. I forgot about and that And he guy. vowed, he vowed to get revenge on everyone here it is (laughs) so thomas of lancaster was declared a traitor and sentenced to die in the middle of an english downpour thomas of lancaster was marched to a hill outside of pontefract priory kneeled facing the direction of scotland and was beheaded with three clumsy cuts by an executioner and with that edward ii's revenge was complete i don't want to die in the rain i'm gonna be like like the universe is weeping okay for my death. Dying in the rain. Yeah. Let my blood mix with the rain and sprinkle okay, the I earth. I wasn't going to go that far, but sure. <laughs> so this was the first time a lord with hereditary claims had been sentenced to death as a traitor since the conquest by William the Conqueror, and it would have far-reaching ramifications. So before this time, you remember <laughs> when Eleanor of Aquitaine like tried to incite a rebellion and mm-hmm. he just he imprisons her? Yeah. It's because they're there was this understanding you don't actually kill the other lords of the realm. Okay. That makes sense. So with Edward II and the Dispenser faction now victorious, they enjoy a solid four years of control in England. Unfortunately, Edward did not know how to play a subtle hand and their rule over England was said to be harsh and unforgiving. Oh, good. Thomas of Lancaster's death set a new precedent and made it clear that to defy the king, be it a lowly squire to a powerful lord, could now mean death, and many knights, squires, and lords who had previously rebelled against the king were now rooted out, named for traitors, and then killed. Oh, shit. Edward's vengeance did not stop there and even included imprisoning extended family members of traitors, including their wives and children. So he's almost like a, a Henry VIII where he just is like, I'm killing everyone. Everyone goes. <laughs> pretty, I mean, pretty much. Jeez. And this this all stems from this moment <clears throat> in history because before then, again, you exiled your political enemies. You yeah. didn't kill them. So it's a huge moment in history. Yeah. Edward and Isabella once again found themselves in Scotland, waging yet another unsuccessful campaign against the Scots. At one point, Edward leaves Isabella at Tynemouth Priory, close to the border of Scotland, while he heads south to raise more men for the campaign, in spite of Isabella expressing concerns for her safety. I feel like this is going to end badly. So when Edward offered to send for the dispensers to keep her safe, she outright rejected him. And to be fair, I don't. I yeah, I'd have outright reject. Like this, no. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, he tried to physically. Yeah, he tried to physically assault me. I don't freaking think so. Yeah. <laughs> and as it so happened, her concerns about the Scottish army were well-founded because she found herself surrounded and trapped mm -hmm. at Tynemouth Priory, uh -oh. with Scottish forces completely cutting her off from the rest of England. Isabella's knights were forced to commandeer a ship to escape, but two of her ladies-in-waiting were killed in the process. And with a dramatic storm raging about, Isabella fled to York. At this point, the damage between Isabella and Edward was irreparable, and her loyalty to her husband is completely forfeited. Irreparable. Irreparable. You want to say that again? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it. Okay. <laughs> so Isabella had, for all intents and purposes presented herself as the perfect, dutiful, medieval queen consort. She had given her husband three other children in addition to her heir, interceded on behalf of the nobles in the name of mercy and diplomacy, um, exemplifying that soft power that we talked about yeah. in the last episode. When you say an heir and three other children, do you just mean, like, so the heir and then there's boys and girls, or the heir and it's all girls? Um, It's a mix. Okay. <laughs> Basically, there's the heir, and then she's got a spare. And then there's... <laughs> an heir, a spare, and the rest. <laughs> yes, pretty much. Can that be a shirt? <laughs> an heir, a spare, and the rest. Somebody make that shirt for us. Yes. <laughs> um, so she was rewarded for all her loyalty with intimidation within her own court. And it eventually became clear to her that Dispenser had taken his hold on Edward. There was no place for her, and there was no reasoning with the king. And it wasn't long before Isabella herself came under suspicion. So at this point... um. Isabella's youngest brother, Charles. Is it the sixth? <laughs> I don't Charles. know your notes. <laughs> so, okay, so we had Philip the Fourth die. Uh huh. And we had Louis and we had Philip. They've become kings, they've mm -hmm. died, and now it's Charles. It's her last brother. Okay. Historically speaking, the kings of England have always journeyed to France to pledge their loyalty to the king of France because they're technically a vassal in being the dukes of whatever duchy yeah. they have at the time. So it was it was time for Edward to do this again, but he refused. I was going to say, I feel like he's about to throw a temper tantrum. He'd be well, like, nah. <laughs> part of it, it's not necessarily that he was throwing a temper tantrum. He just, his kingdom was too vulnerable. He couldn't leave it at this point. Yeah, because he made it vulnerable. Well, Yeah. <laughs> I'm not you killed everyone. I'm not saying dude. I sympathize with him. I'm just saying, like, it's it's not as simple as him being like, I don't want to pledge myself to your brother. It's, he literally couldn't leave without yeah. risking the kingdom being taken from him. Yeah. So Charles the Sixth. That's what I have. So I'm gonna go with it. <laughs> it's too many of them. You're not wrong. So he retaliates by capturing Gascony, which is again that southern province, the last remaining province that English England owns. Mm -hmm. Hugh Dispenser, in turn, re retaliated against Isabella, first by seizing all her lands and then by arresting the French members of her household and stripping her of her queenly comforts, basically. And Edward and, just was like, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah. What a dick. Yep. Oh. And then finally, Isabella's three youngest children were removed from her care and placed <gasps> in the custody oh. of the Dispensers. Oh, that's gotta be just, whoa, for her. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Isabella had been deprived of her closest allies and isolated within her own court, and her children had been taken away from her. So at the age of 27, Isabella was shrewd enough to see where this was all going and was likely influenced as much by her dignity as she was concerned for the position of her children. She's only 27. She's only 27. Yep. <laughs> and so she waited patiently, biding her time. Wow. So despite... 
having imprisoned several of their detractors, many of them had escaped captivity. Perhaps the most damning for Edward and Dispenser had been Roger Mortimer, who had escaped the Tower of London after colluding with the second in command of the garrison and convincing him to get the rest of the garrison drunk on wine. Mortimer... That probably didn't take much. <laughs> Mortimer... You guys want to get drunk? Yes! <laughs> Mortimer escaped by climbing a curtain wall and then fleeing across the river in a rowboat, and he would end up fleeing to the French court in Paris. I'm just envisioning him. Do you see where scaling this is the going? curtain. So Isabella saw a unique opportunity to escape in the troubles with Gascony, volunteering to go over in Edward's place to pledge fealty to her brother in her husband's name. And apparently Isabella had played the part of the docile, humble wife so convincingly that even as her lands were confiscated and her children removed from her care, Edward and Dispenser still trusted her to act in good faith and return to England once negotiations were completed. I am so in love with the powerful women like that who play the docile women. And yeah. it's just like, oh, it's great. <laughs> she, again, very shrewd, very aware of what was going mm -hmm. on, able to calculate in the moment, and figure yeah. out what she needed to do. Yeah. So Isabella traveled to France without Edward at her side, where she was reunited with her brother and played the role of the dutiful wife publicly, writing to her husband of her negotiations with the French king. Her efforts were proving fruitful, she would write, and they were taking time, so this required her prolonged presence in France. She didn't technically say which efforts were proving fruitful. Exactly. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so as time continues to go on, it becomes very clear to Edward that Isabella has no intention of returning to England. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Why would she return to you? <laughs> and Edward was about to be duped for a second time. Seems like it's an easy task. <laughs> <laughs> right? So Charles was growing impatient with Edward, who continued to refuse to make the trip to France and offer homage to the French king, this time due to hereditary claims in Aquitaine. Isabella, of course had the perfect solution. Her eldest son and Edward's namesake, the future Edward III, could travel to France in her father's place to be mm -hmm. installed as the Duke of Aquitaine and offer his pledge of fealty. Please tell me she's collecting her children right now. <laughs> in the name of the French king. <laughs> and so the 12-year-old prince did just this. Edward had intended to trade the crown prince for his wife and even sent orders with the younger Edward that Isabella was to return to England immediately. <laughs> Unfortunately for Edward, he had greatly miscalculated Isabella's compliance. So Helen Castor remarks of this moment in She-Wolves. With her son at her side, she was no longer merely an adjunct to her husband's power, a consort who could be silenced and isolated if she failed to cooperate. Instead, she stood apart as the mother of the heir to the throne, an anointed queen who could speak and act for her young son and his people in the face of tyranny that her husband's rule had become. <laughs> Edward had unwittingly delivered the most important pawn on the board straight into his scorned wife's hands. Well, yeah, dude. <laughs> Your people literally hate you and are, are wait, just waiting for the chance this to turn like against you. This is like the most you. stupid thing he's, he's ever done. He's literally handing it to her. <laughs> So by the time Prince Edward's entourage reaches the French court, one of the royal envoys declares King Edward's orders publicly within the court um, that Isabella was supposed to return to England immediately. So Isabella's response was also declared publicly for the French court to hear. And this is what she says. 
I feel that marriage is a joining together of man and woman, and someone has come between my husband and myself, trying to break this bond. I protest that I will not return until this intruder is removed, but discarding my marriage garment shall assume the robes of widowhood and mourning until I am avenged of this Pharisee. Unless the gauntlet was thrown, Isabella would not return. It's a bit dramatic, but all right. (laughs) It's all dramatic. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, she basically says, I'm not returning until Hugh Dispenser is forcibly removed. Not returning and you're dead to me. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) You are dead to me. You're dead to me. (laughs) Edward was said to be in complete disbelief when news got back to him. Complete? Really, dude? He just, apparently he couldn't fathom how Dispenser could possibly be Isabella's enemy. Nor could he believe that she was acting alone, having been such the loving and complacent wife. Denial is not just a river in Egypt. (laughs) Isabella now became the figurehead for both France and England's frustrations and disenchantments with the English king. Several members of Prince Edward's entourage decided to stay with their queen in France, including Edward's half-brother, the Earl of Kent. (laughs) And so the beginnings of a new rebellion was beginning to take shape, with the Queen of England, the prince and heir to the English throne, and the king's half-brother, joining with other exiles that had fled England following Thomas of Lancaster's rebellion. Even his half-brother was like, no. (laughs) Yeah, he's just alienated everyone left and right. And it's right around this time Roger Mortimer joins up with Isabella. This is the same Roger Mortimer that escaped the Tower of London. Via climbing the curtains. Yes. (laughs) Yes, he climbed the curtains. I love that. That's what you took away from that. That's what I took away from that. (laughs) It's very clear in my mind. A grown-ass man climbing the curtains. And the curtains didn't break. (laughs) So as with most scandalous affairs of the time, there is little evidence in existence that tells us exactly what went on behind closed doors between Isabella of France and Roger Mortimer. What we do know is that they were close in age with shared political grievances and interests. They're having an affair, obviously. Isabella was a beautiful, jilted queen, and Mortimer a seasoned soldier with a vendetta and a desire to reclaim his land. I'm kind of here for that story. It's the sort of <laughs> plot line that is perfect for a historical fiction romance novel, and indeed, their supposed romance has been adapted in many different forms. I'm, I'm here for it. It sounds great. <laughs> However, their dalliance initially started. Dalliance. Whatever. (laughs) However, their dalliance initially started. Isabella had to walk a very fine line. Though I doubt anyone could begrudge her some comforts after years of humiliation. We all know that adultery for a queen was a sin in the eyes of God and a crime of treason that could warrant imprisonment or worse. It is perhaps this reason that she cleverly chose to wear mourning colors typically reserved for widows. Yeah, she also told, probably said, my husband's dead to me until he figures his shit out. Well, yeah, and then she initially was like, and now I'm wearing the mourning colors as if my husband's already dead. So we can only speculate as to what drove her into the arms of Mortimer. By openly declaring war against her husband, though, there was no safe recourse anymore. So maybe Isabella just decided to say fuck it and go for what she yeah, wanted. Yeah, pretty much. She's like, I already <laughs> crossed the line. I might as well just stay here and she have a freaking blast. Get a little love out of it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> By joining- With the seasoned soldier. Like, I can just see <laughs> he was the ripped bod yeah. on the front cover of this stupid romance. <laughs> <laughs> he was apparently pretty handsome. He better be. <laughs> <laughs> By joining forces with Mortimer, she had several new resources at hand. Namely, the fact that he was already a proven soldier on the battlefield and could call upon his allies in England and lead the military campaign. 
By naming dispensers her enemy, she could count on widespread support for her cause as so many people had already taken up arms against him. Isabella had already declared that her husband was dead to her. She was not acting as the queen consort anymore, but a queen mother fighting for the rights of her son. The only thing left to do was raise an army. And kill her husband. (laughs) Minor detail. (laughs) So knowing what we do about alliances, what is the primary source of securing an alliance? A marriage. Oh shit, I forgot. Yeah. (laughs) I blacked that out on purpose, but thanks for bringing it back up. (laughs) And who should be without a wife right now? The youngest child in history. (laughs) Her 12-year-old Prince Edward. (laughs) Oh, it's a boy. Okay. (laughs) So he's conveniently still not wed. Because he's 12. Well, yeah. (laughs) But now that he was in Isabella's grasp, she and Mortimer decided to revive an alliance that had previously been in the works six years earlier. This marriage alliance, I know, (laughs) saw Philippa of Hanowit, I believe it's Hanowit, marry Prince Edward, and with her dowry came more troops from Hanowit. So they, they don't actually get married yet, but they are officially betrothed, and then he well they get her army her army her people's (laughs) army yeah (laughs) i'm 12 i have an army you want to see it it's out back (laughs) she was younger i think oh no rachel i i didn't don't tell me facts in this episode (laughs) king edward expressed his horrified displeasure by sending letters to his son the king of france and even the pope to beg for his help i'm just envisioning him with the quill he's like and i'll tell you and then oh no it broke (laughs) So the Pope responded by threatening to excommunicate King Charles VI for sheltering the adulterous queen and her faithless lover. Charles complied publicly, all the while allowing Isabella and Mortimer to gather their forces in Portier. And he's like, uh huh. He yep. also funded okay. <laughs> he funded mercenaries solicited out of Germany. Yes. He's like, sure thing, brother-in-law. <laughs> like yeah they're gone from my court i have yeah, nothing to do i have that. no idea where they are and he turns and winks at them <laughs> on september 24th 1326 isabella's fleet lands at orwell on the eastern coast of england isabella already had edward's half-brother the earl of kent on her side and immediately after landing in england the king's other half-brother the earl of norfolk defects to the queen's side as well this poor guy he's just like what no, the fuck. there's nothing poor about it. I know, I'm not I'm not sad for him, but I just can envision him like alone in his like in the middle of a room, just like why? Well, this is this is the best part. As the Queen's rebel forces made their way inland, they encountered next to zero resistance. <laughs> years and years of tyrannical rule left the king completely vulnerable. The as peasants no one, are just like, carry on. <laughs> no one was willing to come forward and defend him. They're probably throwing flowers in the road, like, fuck yeah. It's funny you should mention that. No. <laughs> So on top of that, she gained more support the further inland she went. And as people were deflecting to her cause, they brought her gifts and money as well to help fund the army. Bet they did. (laughs) That's amazing. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Isabella is said to have insisted that fair prices be paid for the supplies used to replenish her army stores. She was there as a liberator, after all, not to pillage the country any further from what had already experienced from their faithless king. The peasants are like, I'm going to reach into this pocket deeper and I'm going to get you more money. <laughs> the entire time Isabella and Mortimer are gathering more supporters, they were careful to state in any public proclamations that their loyalty was to the king and their call to arms was specifically against Hugh Dispenser. To the king that they're going to put on the throne after they kill the current king. <laughs> 
Fine print, guys, fine print. <laughs> this careful wordsmithing was a callback to the rebellion previously made against Piers Gaveston, who had been perceived as an ill and evil counselor to the King of England. <laughs> so again, they're not going against the King of England. Yeah. They're going against his evil counselors. Yeah, but you're going against the King of England <laughs> because the King of England chose these ridiculous counselors. By the time Isabella and Mortimer reached London, it was completely overrun with mobs due to the power vacuum that now existed after Edward II and Hugh Dispenser abandoned the capital. Oh, Amidst, wow. Yeah, so utter pandemonium yeah, just breaks out. Um, and this is just one tidbit I pulled out, but the Bishop of Exeter, he'd been the treasurer of England and one of Hugh Dispenser's main allies, he rides into the city to retrieve his jewels and his books, and the mob responded by pulling him from his horse, stripping him of his armor, and cutting off his head with a crude baker's knife. Yeah, dude, you don't go into the mobs and pitchforks. No. You, you, you kind of you leave wanna, your money. You want to go around. Leave those. your money. Yeah. <laughs> Hugh Dispenser and Edward II attempted to flee England via a ship to get to Ireland, but it seemed even the gods were against him as strong winds at sea kept pushing their boat back to the English shore. I really love when the universe is against them. It yeah. makes me happy. <laughs> the King of England was essentially on the run at this point, a fugitive in his own kingdom, with his beloved favorite at his side. And on November 16, 1326, Edward II and Hugh Dispenser were finally caught and arrested in southern Wales. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you say that, but oh, no. a, it's about to get medieval. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> Retribution came swiftly, and it came mercilessly for Edward II's supporters. I'm going to take this opportunity to give you a little medieval violence disclaimer. It's about to get rough. <laughs> you might want to skip ahead about a Here's minute. Here's the R-rated warning. You've had it. We're carrying on now. <laughs> so Hugh Dispenser's father was captured in Bristol. He was condemned for a traitor without any opportunity to provide his own defense. Was his father involved? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. I just... And he was strung up on the city gallows and then cut down so that he could be decapitated. His body was then hacked to pieces and fed to the dogs. Wow. So he was strung up, meaning he was... He was hung. Hung by his neck. Yes. Okay. And then decapitated. Sure. And then Just make up. sure. Hugh Dispenser himself mm -hmm. was brought to the town of Hereford and taken before Isabella Mortimer. Knowing exactly what his fate had in store for him, Dispenser attempted to starve himself so that he could die before his execution. But alas, to no avail. On November 24th, 1326, he was dragged through the streets of Hereford by a horse, brought to a scaffold, stripped, hung, decapitated, and then drawn and quartered. There was more. <laughs> decapitated and then drawn and quartered. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, so the reason he was drawn and quartered was that his body pieces were sent off across England to the Four Corners. To do what? Hang out? Yeah. Great. This is a thing. Why didn't you feed him to the dogs? I think they I think the whole point of this is to She's show like, your get enemies. Him out of my sight. No, it's just it's to show your enemies what will happen to you. It's like when you leave the yeah. one ant the one dead ant in yeah. the trail and you're like, bitches. <laughs> Warning. Yeah, this, this happened a lot. Wow. I just think it's it's interesting how above and beyond even death they go yes just to be like you effed up if we're you not... f up like this this is what's going to happen to your corpse we're not done oh no <laughs> so when edward ii was captured he was kept prisoner by henry of lancaster this is thomas of lancaster's brother mm -hmm. at monmouth castle isabella found herself in a strangely preca precarious situation 
The publicly stated motive for her rebellion was that the king of England had found himself bewitched by an evil counselor. The counselor's but, dead. <laughs> but Hugh Dispenser is now dead. So where does this leave the king of England? He's had two dumbass counselors, so there's a common denominator. You can go with that. <laughs> <laughs> so Isabella he sucks at this. <laughs> Isabella was faced with the novel task of setting aside one living king so that his son could ascend to the throne. By Can they starting... not ascend the throne, though, if there's a living? No. It's not legitimate. It's just never been done, at least okay. not in England. Yeah, but then, yeah, okay. So by starting the rebellion in the name of her son, Isabella had already planted the seeds to make this happen. She was, after all, acting on behalf of her son and not herself. Isabella's first act to facilitate this transition was to use the great seal now in her possession, which had been captured from Edward II upon his arrest. The great seal. Yeah, they, they the kings of England have a seal, so anytime... I know. I'm just imagining a seal. With a, an actual seal. <laughs> a royal seal. A royal seal, <laughs> if you will. So with it, Isabella and Mortimer claimed that the king had given the seal freely to his wife and their son. They publicly claimed that the king had declared they should do not only what was necessary for right and peace, but also what should please them. This was the same proclamation Richard I had made when he left Eleanor of Aquitaine in charge of the kingdom while he was on crusade. Hmm. So they basically said, oh yeah, Edward II, he, you know, my husband, he said, yeah, yeah. I've got control of the kingdom. He said, it's fine, guys. It's fine. it's fine. He didn't write an angry letter, but it's fine. <laughs> In January of 1327, Parliament called a session to formally legally depose Edward II and place him under house arrest for the rest of his life, while also putting forward his son as the new king of England. History did not record Edward II's state of mind when the news was brought to him, but we do know that he willingly relinquished relinquished the crown to his son on January 20th, 1327. One report did supposedly suggest that Edward II collapsed and fainted once he had initially been informed what was going to happen. It's just the icing on top of the cake. He fainted. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> he's our damsel. He is. Yeah, he's our the damsel of the story, actually, guys. <laughs> on February 1st, 1327, Isabella's 14-year-old son was anointed and crowned at Westminster and named King Edward III. <laughs> Poor kid's like, I'm 14. <laughs> A new regency council was formed around Edward III, with Isabella named as his regent. Henry of Lancaster had his brother's lands restored to him and was named the chief guarding of the king. The rest of the council was made up of the great bishops and lords of England, but everyone knew that behind the scenes, the rule is now in the hands of Isabella and Mortimer. So what follows next has been a matter of hot debate amongst historians, with no concrete answer ever coming from it. Easy with those adjectives. <laughs> Edward II would not survive his captivity for more than a year and ended up dying at Berkeley Castle, with word reaching Isabella and Edward III on September 23rd, 1327. The messenger remarked that he had died of a fatal accident. There are some seriously hard quotation marks around that. <laughs> oh, yes. That, that was the official word. In the Again, it's like the messenger was like, yeah, he fell down the stairs right after I pushed him. <laughs> so in the months leading up to his death, three attempts to free the captive king had been uncovered, making it clear that the public would not forget the fact that he was captive anytime soon. And if you think Edward II's death seems a little too convenient, you wouldn't be the only one. Prominent amongst the rumors that arose from his death were that Isabella and Mortimer had ordered his assassination with variations on 
where the chief responsibility fell. Some claimed Isabella acted independently, while others said Mortimer acted because his queen could not. The worst of the allegations claimed that Edward II was murdered with a hot poker. Oh. Yeah. <clears throat> that doesn't doesn't scream accident. <laughs> no. Um, but other people have speculated he had simply grown sick from captivity and died of more natural causes. Either way, we don't really know for sure. Edward II's body was buried at Gloucester Cathedral, but rumors persisted for many years following his death that he was actually alive and living in exile in Europe. There was even a letter written by a Genoese priest at Avignon. Manuel Fieschi suggested that Edward II exchanged clothes with the servant at Berkeley Castle and escaped first to Ireland and then later to Italy. And the idea was that Edward II secretly survived but lived a life of anonymity as a hermit after his son ascended to the throne. Anyone interested in this specific time period should check out Ken Follett's book, A World Without End. You can also find the miniseries adapted from the book streaming online. It paints a far more sympathetic picture of Edward II without any of the historical tyranny while also presenting Isabella as a one-note villain. So Isabella now found herself in a unique position. The Queen Mother has traditionally always exercised more power as the mother of a king rather than as her husband's consort, but she also had the shadow of her late husband's death hanging over her shoulder and was now cavorting rather openly with Roger Mortimer as her lover. Isabella and Mortimer's power over the kingdom could only be maintained in the name of Edward III's guardianship. So history has shown us that Isabella was a shrewd politician acutely aware of her position within the English court and careful with her displays of piety, along with her dignity, which had previously been bruised by her late husband and his favorites. Her victory had been swift over Edward II once all the chess pieces fell into place. Unfortunately, it is one thing to conquer and another thing entirely to rule. And it appeared that Isabella herself had learned nothing from watching her late husband fall prey to his favorite's ambitions at the expense of the kingdom and its powerful barons. Conquering is the easy part. It's playing the games in the court and dealing with the court and trying to placate everyone. And yeah, I wouldn't wish that upon anyone. So following her son's coronation, Isabella claimed the dower lands that had previously been stolen from her, which netted her about 4,500 pounds a year. But on top of that, she claimed more estates whose worth netted her three times the amount she previously enjoyed. Yeah, that's where you you, um, cross the wrong line. (laughs) It gets worse. Take what is owed and that's it. (laughs) So Mortimer was also granted the lordships previously claimed by Hugh Dispenser. Oh no. Granted the title of Justicar over the Principality of Wales and his three sons were knighted. In 1328, Isabella created the title of the Earl of March for Mortimer, which grants him even more dominion over lands in Ireland. You can't just pull titles out of your ass. (laughs) And it makes him more powerful than even Hugh Dispenser had been. Oh, good. Mortimer was, for all intents and purposes, an uncrowned king, with Isabella as queen mother at his side. Mortimer grew increasingly oppressive over Edward III, preventing the young king from speaking for himself and keeping an intrusive eye on him at all times. Justice Scotland had proved quarrelsome during Edward II's reign. So too did the Scots pose an issue during Isabella's regency. And just as the English had been nearly useless against the Scottish raids under Edward II, so too had they proved ineffectual again, resulting in the near capture of the teenage King Edward III. 
So Isabella took a more realistic approach with the Scots. She sought peace rather than war and formally recognized Robert Bruce as King of Scotland. Unheard of. <laughs> and Scotland as an independent kingdom for the first time in English history. Peace might have been necessary logistically, but it was a disaster for English morale. The English famously referred to it as turpus pa, which means ugly or shameful peace. And Edward III was also completely displeased with the peace as well, feeling that his mother was giving away his birthright. So they didn't... They didn't want peace? No. Oh, okay. Because, again, England wants to rule everything. That's true. Yeah. So Isabella... I'm my I, <laughs> I would say in this regard, like, when we look at it from a modern perspective, she was incredibly diplomatic, but it works against her yeah. within England. Yeah. Because you're not playing to your crowd. Yeah. yeah. So Isabella also found herself making the same enemies her late husband had, ironically enough. For Edward II, it had been Thomas of Lancaster. For Isabella, it was Thomas's brother, Henry of Lancaster. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so though he had been instrumental in helping her um, with her rebellion against Edward II, Henry Lancaster soon grew disenchanted with Isabella's regime, in large part because of her... Um, her favoritism with Roger Mortimer. Her literally doing the exact same things they they deposed the former king for doing. Yes. And then he also, <laughs> he blamed her for Scotland because yeah. again, Scotland was theirs or so they claimed. <laughs> By 1328, just one year after usurping the throne for her son, the country was already on the brink of civil war again. You couldn't even last a year. One of the most famous depictions of Isabella is during the battle for Henry of Lancaster's stronghold in Leicester where the she-wolf of France was said to be wearing armor and mounted on a war horse. She was in armor on a horse. <laughs> well, there's paintings of this. It was as she actually rode. Well, yeah, no, I, I yeah. believe it. I just think it's so funny. They're like, <gasps> what? <laughs> I think it's pretty badass. <laughs> and with the aid of her son, Edward III, still a teenager, they were able to force Henry of Lancaster's surrender. By 1330, Isabella Mortimer had determined had been determined to flush out any more possible detractors to their rule. They turned their sights on the young king's uncle, the Earl of Kent. Mm -hmm. You'll remember this was Edward's half-brother that initially sided with them in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Suspecting his loyalty was faulty, Isabella sent letters to the Earl of Kent, um, disguised. They obviously didn't say they were from her. Yeah. The letters said that Edward II was secretly alive, and... Basically, the Earl of Kent, perhaps disenchanted by his own loss of status in court, set to work to free this fake Edward. And in the end, it was his own letters penned by his own hand that proved his undoing. And they were read in court. You don't write letters. That's like today's equivalent of you don't send texts and emails. <laughs> so the Earl of Kent was condemned for a traitor. Yet the queen could not find anyone willing to execute a man with royal blood. So they resorted to using a felon for the unwanted task in exchange for a pardon. And so the king's uncle was killed, signaling that another potential new reign of terror was about to begin. That's its own slap in the face, aside from your death. Oh, I know. <laughs> Where it's like, no one wanted to kill you, but we still want you dead. So we're just going to hire this. It wasn't sap. that no one wanted to kill him. It's that everyone was too afraid because again, yeah. you are killing a member of the Royal blood. Yeah. No executioner was willing to do it. In the end, Isabella's reign as the queen regent of England only lasts a total of three years. And it would be her own son that proves her undoing. 
Edward III was known for being quiet and calculated in his youth, the opposite of his father. And perhaps that is why Isabella and Mortimer underestimated Edward III. Well, yeah, they just thought of him as their pawn. Yeah. Essentially. I mean, they're like, you're you're the mouthpiece, but we're going to be pulling your strings. Well, Edward III was also very much his mother's son. So the young king had grown concerned with the increasing paranoia within his court. His own uncle had been killed and his frustration was growing with his lack of agency due to Mortimer's own personal power. And just as Isabella had blindsided her husband by organizing a coup to seat their son on his throne, so too did Edward III blindside Isabella. <laughs> In yet another attempt to weed out rebels within the court, Mortimer had made the mistake of targeting the young king's friends. On October 18, 1330, William Montague and a number of their friends were arrested and interrogated. He was unable to get any information out of them, and the group left the city only to return later in the night via a secret tunnel in Nottingham Castle. What information were they trying to get? Proof that they were traitors. On what grounds? That they were traitors. Great. <laughs> I'm glad we're all... I, there, there's no grounds at this point. Oh, okay. They're just trying it's to prove... It's the paranoia just growing yes. and growing. And so growing. it was more Roger Mortimer trying to be like... Are you plotting against the king? Are yeah. you plotting against the king? Yeah. It's really, are you plotting against me? Yeah. But like, these are Edward III's good friends. Yeah. And a kid who's already got, you know, no one helping him. Once they returned in that, through that secret tunnel, William Montague and Edward III took the castle by force with 23 armed men, taking Isabella and Mortimer by surprise at sword point. Mortimer was arrested, and Isabella famously threw herself at her 17-year-old son's feet, pleading, Fair son, have pity on gentle Mortimer. <laughs> he didn't. Yeah, good. <laughs> Mortimer was convicted of treason, charged with murdering the king's father and usurping power from the present king. On November 29, 1330, Roger Mortimer was executed at Tyburn Manor. And to his credit, Edward III granted Roger Mortimer a clean, if slightly undignified, death. Uh -huh. He was hung from the gallows without any pomp or ceremony, but was spared being quartered and disemboweled. Yay for small mercy! Yeah, sure! <laughs> so if Isabella mourned her former lover, she did it in private. Ever the ambitious but practical woman, she was quick to reassume the role of the supporting queen mother to her son. Isabella did not enjoy the same kind of power as Eleanor of Aquita Aquitaine did as the queen mother to Richard the Lionheart. Edward initially placed Isabella under a very comfortable form of house arrest at Edward III's court in Windsor. And when Mortimer had been on trial for treason, his relationship with Isabella was conveniently left out. So he did protect his mother's reputation. Yeah. yeah. Afterwards, she moved to Castle Rising in Norfolk where she lived a quiet but luxurious and comfortable life for the next 30 years. Isabella would never be a major power player in English politics again, but she was free of a discourteous husband and hosted visits with her son's family frequently, as well as Mortimer's children and grandchildren who would eventually see their family lands return to them. Isabella died on August 22, 1358, at approximately 62 years old at Hertford Castle. I really thought you were going to say the time. <laughs> what i thought you were gonna be like at 602 <laughs> oh, no. don't quite have that exact timing down so despite living out the latter half of her life in dignified peace 
Isabel is the only queen consort in English history to successfully usurp the throne from a sitting king of England. Her legacy would live on in Edward III, who proved to be just as shrewd and calculated as his mother, but managed to learn the lessons she did not, chiefly in that loyalty was a more stable road to power than fear. Edward III would reign in England for 50 years and become the standard for which all his predecessors would be held to. He's essentially one of the most famous kings in English history. Awesome. And again, he goes on to father the subhouses that would be you gotta love kids that learn from their parents mistakes (laughs) yes isabella was also the key figure to initially push her son's claim to the french throne after her father and three brothers all died in france without a male heir she made the claim that the throne by rights should pass to her son this was effectively the start of the hundred years war between england and france where english kings had a legitimate claim to the throne through Isabella, and although she did not have the money to pursue a full military campaign on her own, Edward III would later go on to press this claim himself in all earnest, and thus Isabella was responsible not only for claims made on an English throne, but on a French throne as well. And that's Isabella, the she-wolf of France. Hell yes. (laughs) So I'm gonna go right into our, is she difficult or damsel, just from your last paragraph. Yeah, she's difficult. (laughs) She she managed to, you know, move the pieces on two different thrones and I managed say, to say, screw this guy. I'm going to, I know. would say she started out very much as a damsel. Oh yeah. I mean, like, they all do. <laughs> she, her, she was clearly very resilient. And again, everyone pointed out her intelligence. And I think that's fitting yeah. because this is the poster story of, you yeah. can only push a person so much yeah. before they turn around and bare their teeth. Yes. So. Yes. Oh, that was actually a very good analogy. That was. Holy shit. Look at perfect. me. <laughs> bare your teeth like a wolf, would you say? I think that's what I, I was wonder going for. if that's where that comes from. Huh. <laughs> yeah, she she's the epitome of difficult. And again, she actually took the throne of England. Yeah. From her husband. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so the other question we were kind of pondering was, um, I don't know, it's kind of hard to say, like, was she justified? So I'm going to go more with what would you have done in her? The same thing. I wouldn't, I mean, I would have done the same thing where if you push me enough times, I'm going to turn around. Yeah, like it was like you were saying um, off mic, but corner an animal long enough and they're going to bite. They're going to bite. They're going to claw. They're going to yeah. do whatever they can to survive. Yeah. She was very difficult. Um, it's kind of interesting that she had the reverse life of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yeah. Like the last 30 years of her life were spent just chilling in her castle. She's like, I did my thing. I'm awesome. Thumbs <laughs> like, I'm up. good. You keep the throne, man. I'm going to be over here. <laughs> Happy to have my head on my shoulders. <laughs> did she still have her 72 headdresses? I'm sure she did. I hope she did. <laughs> Plenty of room. I hope castle. she retired with her 72 headdresses peacefully. <laughs> Bury me with my headdresses. <laughs> Was it 72? That number just came out. It was Sorry. 72. Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah. Quaifs. <laughs> Quaifs. <laughs> read that. And I was like, okay. No, yeah, every <laughs> everything I've, like, the podcast I listened to, the things I read, it was all, like, the wedding was just this lavish affair. And, like, you could see the wealth of France on display with I what she I was going to say any royal table. wedding is... No, but like this was especially... This was a step up? Yes. Okay. Especially just 
again the the king of france is saying like this is my daughter this is what marrying the daughter (laughs) of france brings you yeah okay and then our random question was actually when you had hi yay so i got this i'm i'm a fan of a bunch of um like uh book book groups and pages on facebook and i got this from one of those uh so the question is it's an icebreaker question and i love it so would you rather explore an enchanted forest or a haunted castle who wants to go first me or you You. you're rubbing your hands like you want to go first and you have malicious intent so (laughs) i'm curious to my answer is a combination. God, you can't. No. Yes, it's a haunted forest. I <laughs> would want to go into a haunted forest. You're a psychopath. Because I like the forest part. I mean, I like yeah. castles too, but I like the forest part. But I like the idea of like a dark and dreary forest. Yeah, until you get into a dark and dreary forest, and they're like, "Fuck this shit." Yeah, unless, no, unless some hot fae guy comes at me. That's what I'm. I'm thinking. like, all right. Hi. I'm gonna go to the dark fae court. Like, take me. I'll go with you. That that's base. I would choose an enchanted forest one because there's enchanted animals in there. And he would be Snow White. Yeah, I'd be Snow White, but like more badass. I would like. I'd be a combination you. of Snow White and the Huntsman. Together. I... <laughs> That'd be a cool movie. Snow White is the Huntsman. Snow White the Huntsman. <laughs> you with your enchanted animals, just like yep. doing chores in your cottage. I would put them to work unless they really wanted to. I mean. <laughs> Who's gonna do the work? Uh, no one. <laughs> it's a yeah. forest. No one has to do. See, the work. I was thinking of like, I don't know, like a haunted forest that's full of fog and like the trees look like they're. You can dying. have an enchanted forest full of fog. It doesn't have to be haunted for. Fog. But I want it to be haunted. Okay, <laughs> let me have my haunted. I'm not forest. going into the haunted forest with you. You won't even go into my haunted bedroom. No. Then why are you going into a haunted forest? There is something in there. There's a lot of somethings in there, but we're not talking about the portal to hell that is my closet door. No. No, I, so I am very obsessed with um, Nordic fairy tales, like the the fairies and how they, and the elves and stuff, and then Irish folklore and and myths. I I love anything fairy, fae. Yeah, Look at my bookshelf for Christ's sake. Oh, I know. I'm well aware. My favorite, my favorite book series is about Faye, so. Well, that's why I was like, I want a haunted forest. You. Enchanted oh. forest just sounds too friendly. It doesn't have to. It's I want just the enchan- trees it's to try It's just enchanted and, through magic. I just, I want the trees it to try It doesn't necessarily mean it's like grab me snow white and enchanted. drag me into the underworld. I don't actually want that, but. I was going to say, maybe <laughs> you want to rewind a bit there. I'm not following you. I might. <laughs> Just would, to be like, oh, you would very grudgingly be like, and I have to rescue you again. I'd literally like be standing at the mouth of hell, like, fucking Rachel. <laughs> just like, you see I'd be so exasperated playing with the Fae, just being like, do do do. Fae are not in hell. I know, but I'm just. You'd be playing with demons, and I'd be like, Rachel. <laughs> I'm gonna befriend them by making them love me. Oh my god. <laughs> The sad part is, is I can totally see this happening. Yeah. I mean, I'm just like, are you, are you really playing with those? <laughs> those are not toys. <laughs> They're my new friends. You're not bringing them home. <laughs> Please? No. Damn it. <laughs> All, right, All right, guys. Um, So really quick, the sources for today's episode were Wikipedia and again, She Wolves by Helen Castor other podcast suggestions if you want to learn more about the she-wolf of france again queens of england does an episode series on 
Isabella of France, and then Rex Factor also does, I believe it's a two-part series on Isabella of France, both of which are very good and informative, give you more information than I probably do. But hope you enjoy You gave us quite a bit of information. It was fun. Yeah, I, I liked it. <laughs> I liked the, the soap opera that I'm was. Glad. I love the soap opera. <laughs> I'm like, this needs, somebody please make the Accursed Kings into a TV show, because... <laughs> Yeah, I would. Yeah, <laughs> I would eat it up. Oh man! <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you for listening, and we hope you come back next week. You can find Not us next week. It'll be two weeks. Next from episode. Now. Yeah, <laughs> two weeks from now, you can find us at difficult.damsels at gmail.com. She did it! <laughs> and we're also on Facebook at difficult damsels the podcast. Um, please, and please, if you would take a few seconds to rate and review us. Um, only five stars. Only five stars. Rachel <laughs> will come after you. I will, and I will we'll, release the hound that is Rachel. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> if you leave us a review, hey, if you leave us a bad review, I'll just delete it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> sure, um, if you if you leave us a review, we'll definitely read it on the podcast. Yeah. We, um, if, we you wanna, if you want to yell at us, yell at us via email. Please That's yell at us. I'll Whoa. cry. That's... <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. Yeah, we had fun. We always have fun. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs>